Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Senior Dean Correspondent, reporting for duty. Chris. What's up? And Rich. It me. On today's show, we're going to be talking about an issue that has risen in the news cycle in the past week, you know, alongside record high cases of coronavirus, which is this sudden insistence on the part of president and his fellow Republicans that schools must be open in the fall. They've made um, some increasingly strong demands to this end and have threatened federal aid for schools that do not comply. Just to start us off, Noah, as our teacher, as our senior teen correspondent, how do you feel about the prospect of teaching in person this fall? Let me preface this by saying, because usually... When I'm on these episodes, my job is to talk about how much my job sucks and how much I hate it. But the fact is that I miss being in the classroom. Um, I've I've been doing I'm up to my eyeballs in professional development for designing online and hybrid and flipped and blended and every other possible cooking process uh, courses. And I would much rather if if given my druthers, given proper PPE, given safety protocols and everything, I would love to go back to in-person teaching. The problem is that I don't think there is a single building, a single district, a single superintendent or principal or whatever, who is fully ready to grapple with what that means. And as you just said, Ryan, there's no way in hell the federal and, and state governments mostly are ready to do that either. So it's going to be a crapshoot no matter what we do. But the the signaling from Trump, from DeVos, from a lot of other officials at every level has been basically that teachers are going to die, like to put it bluntly. It's literally just we're going to feed teachers into a meat grinder and hope that, you know, just the right amount die to uh, not have to close schools. That's it. Yeah, I think like, too, the other thing is like. And as someone who was like just recently certified only like two years or so of experience so far, like being around schools is that even without all this, being in a school is like a shock to your immune system. If you haven't been in one in a while, or you've maybe been, maybe if you're new to the environment, just for me, like I don't really get sick often, but like you're around and like you're immediately like you got sniffles consistently, you know, you got, you're kind of under the weather for a while and then you get used to it. So like, these are very, very like, probably the highest risk possible environment. And, you know, kids obviously are not too affected by this for what we've been seeing so far. Um, but there's a lot of anyone who's been in a school as a student or any time in their life, you know, there's a lot of older people, not just teachers, but people in the building, secretaries, therapists, uh, the school nurse, anybody, you know, these are all, there's lots and lots of adults as well, just like any other workplace or office building would be. Um, and I think, you know, part of this push is that there is a, a bit of truth in the idea that like schools do need to like be physically open at some point. 
um, because it's, it is a lot better to be learning that way. It's a lot better from my experience to be teaching that way. Like I missed a lot of just the, just little questions and interactions that would come, um, from, you know, I worked at, I was in a public school eighth grade and I was teaching global 10, um, at a small private religious school. Um, and just all of those little interactions and just seeing them grow and just get better at understanding these little things just doesn't happen online. Even then, even online, I think another concerning thing is that kids who are, you know, doing really well and you do see them all of a sudden, they're not doing so well. They're not doing their homework online. It's harder to pay attention. You know, if you've even been in a college class that's been online, um, you just tend to not take it as seriously. You know, it's kind of about meeting the benchmarks they want you to reach. And my own fear is not just as someone who's recently certified and looking for a job, which is, you know, obviously terrible timing. Is that is this a, could this be a permanent change? Now, New York's been pretty good about resisting those changes, I think, in a lot of ways compared to most states um, and keeping things pretty generous for at least public school teachers and unionized teachers. But I'm very, very worried about this becoming like a hybrid thing, like online, offline um, hybrid thing where they feel comfortable loading a bunch of students onto one teacher or a couple teachers because it's online um, and then hiring less paying less and then you become like you know a future 30 years from now where i'm just like a 10th grade standards adjudicator telling parents to download my pdfs you know adjudicator at least adjudicator is like a cooler title yeah a standards adjudicator you know like that's kind of like a bleak future that is like not Mm -hmm. that far off you know if we're not careful and vigilant about this well, and, and let's remember that that New York State, uh, America's collective Italian dad, the the person that we have the honor to have as our governor, Andrew Cuomo, is raring to just hand all of New York State education to Bill Gates, who has oh, yeah, made reimagine zero it, right? secret. Yeah, Re- reimagine it worse. Uh, he has made zero secret of the fact that that's what he's looking for exactly. And I can tell you that even from the private school world, the movement is towards that. Because, you know, just like hospital groups and healthcare, you have organizations of private schools that are beginning to dominate the market. And the way that they're doing that is at this point, they, they think they've expanded as far as they're going to. So they started to, to start cutting labor costs. And that's how often they do it by moving to an online or hybrid model. You mentioned earlier that the plan from the federal government is that teachers are just going to die. Well, one already has. In Arizona, there was a story about a teacher who contracted coronavirus and passed away after just teaching in a room with other teachers teaching remotely. Um, All three of them contracted the virus. And this is the sort of threat that they're facing in a state that has record high cases among the most in the country right now. And as schools are preparing to open up there just next month. Now, you talked about things from the teacher uh, perspective. I, I will just say from the other side of thing, there's obviously a real a real desire among parents to you know have schools open in the fall. My sister, for example, is a single mother. Her daughter is in uh, first grade now, and she's not a teacher. She is not really equipped for handling the needs of this six-year-old's education and the idea of having to do that all over again in the fall is not one she's looking forward to. So you can understand why there's this desire to reopen schools. The, the question is whether it's safe. And I don't think it's been proven anywhere that it is. Yeah, like 
for learning and teaching purposes and the whole, you know, the daycare thing, which is, you know, perpetually an underrated aspect of this, at least in terms of, I think, a lot of the discussion about schools opening. Um, but I think, too, the other thing that's worrisome, and you've seen this, I mean, you'd expect it from, like, you know, the Trump spokeswoman um, or press secretary um, referencing, like, you know, we're going to fight the teachers unions, right? Like, kind of part of this decades-long rhetoric of trying to turn people against teachers unions. And then when you start to talk about things like, you know, these real everyday needs, like where is my kid going to be when I'm at work, you know, thing issues of daycare and things like that, that can, that's another cudgel that can be used to say like teachers unions are trying to just get theirs. They're trying to protect themselves. And then you, you just got to hope that the messaging is strong enough from the teachers themselves, from the unions or other groups that are understanding the severity of this, um, that it's about a lot more than just that and that any that really anyone in any jobs would want to protect themselves as well like it shouldn't not everyone shouldn't be expected to just be 100 percent totally selfless um but this is something where the, you know the health of the kids is on the line too so you know i'm hoping that it, that doesn't become too much of a cudgel against the unions the way someone like cuomo or the trump administration might want there was an article uh, in the new york times a, a few maybe last week that was like you know, you can be a, a you can go to work or you can be a parent in the COVID economy. You can't be both. Um, and so this has been in many ways a disaster for working parents because of the, the total utter inadequacy of the government's response to everything. Uh, when, you know, it should have been shut down the economy, but also pay people to stay home and, you know, take care of their kids. It shut down the economy and then, you know, turn parents into teachers. But also they have to still do their jobs. And if they're still doing their jobs while they're watching their kids, then, uh, you know, the boss, the bosses are only so tolerant of that. And so we're, we're now reaching the point where, you know, I saw Florida State University, for instance, told the told its employees who are working from home that, uh, like, if they're caught basically parenting their child while on, on the clock, they're going to be subject to discipline, either in the form of being forced to return to the office and potentially put their health at risk uh, or else lose their job. And I think that's there's certainly a union busting kind of like neoliberal school reform aspect uh, undergirding these attempts to uh, force the schools back open. But there's also at the same time uh, an attempt to force people back to work. Uh, and so by the, the way you can get people back to work and back being productive uh, and generating profits is uh, to ensure that the state is doing one of the few things it still does, which is warehouse the children for eight hours. Um, and, you know, so safety be damned, that's what's going to happen. The parents must be productive um, and the children must be, you know, me measured. Yeah, I was I was going to say that that hits the nail exactly on the head. The the other day noted um, that, well, his name is Alex Berenson. He's the, the former New York Times reporter who went from marijuana is the scariest drug that has ever existed to covid is not like a thing um, and we shouldn't be scared of it. Um, he's the thinking man skeptic. Yes, ironically. But he posted a survey from uh, Scottsdale. I may have referenced this on last week's episode, but it was of different stakeholders. So it was students, teachers, parents, administrators, and then I think support staff or or some other kind of sector of the population. And the thing that was interesting to me is that students and parents obviously favored returning. And I think I have to imagine that the way the question was phrased to them, because I don't think even with the way that uh, 
even with all of this messaging that Rich and Chris are both accurately referencing that puts other people against teachers, I don't think most students and parents actually want their kids as teachers to die, however often they might say it. So I have to imagine that the question to them was put like, if there were appropriate safety protocols, if it was safe to reopen, would you favor reopening? Teachers were still against it, I suspect, because we work in those buildings and we know that it won't be safe. And we know that the last sector, which is where I'm getting to, uh, administrators aren't going to do enough. And it was administrators where every single member favored it. And that was what was amazing to me, Um, because I think what you're having here is I've been in my building since lockdown kind of uh, loosened. I I went in to get my... uh, my my new laptop. And when I was in there, I noticed that administrator support staff were kind of doing what they always do just with masks on. And then it kind of hit me like, that's right. None of you interact with a hundred plus kids every single day you're at work. So for you, this is more a question of how am I going to reduce the interactions that I already have for us? That's an essential part. Of, that is the job. What you see as safe is not the same as it is for us. And again, I think most of us want to be back in the classroom. We just do not trust our bosses to do it in a way that will prevent us from getting sick and or dying. And the safety measures they're proposing here are a whitewash, basically, that's utterly inadequate to uh, the demands of what we know about how COVID works. Like, Frankly, it's just unsafe to be indoors. It's unsafe to be indoors with a large number of people. And it's especially unsafe to be indoors with a large number of people for a sustained amount of time. So when you're talking about being inside a school, which is eight hours, hundreds of kids cycling through each other uh, as they change classes, as they go to lunch, as they do, you know, the stuff you do in a school day, there's just no way to contain it. There's no amount of enforced mask wearage or sanitation that's going to stop uh, the disease from spreading. And so that's, that's what's so difficult about this is that until there's a vaccine, uh, the school itself is going to be an unsafe place. Uh, and you're going to risk not only teachers dying, not only students dying, but students going home after school and bringing back with them as they're notorious to do their germs from school and getting them to family members and getting them out into their community Um, And and so you're really just looking at like one more disaster uh, on top of uh, upcoming evictions crisis, on top of the expiration of unemployment that's going to happen when the schools are forced back open, uh, you know, basically a month or two from now, depending on when, you know, which school district you're in. There was a quote from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis the other day to the effect of, if you can go to Home Depot, you can go to school, which is just very stupid, but. That's Florida's governor. There are obvious differences, as Rich laid out, in that you're spending eight hours a day in school in a way that, um, except for employees, most people are not at Home Depot. Now, I do want to point out that despite this, you know, expressed desire to get back in classrooms, you know, it's very real. There are teachers beginning to push back against the reality of what the plans to actually reopen schools are. Um, I'm reading from an article that was just published today, uh, July 11th in the New York Times, quote, 
On Friday, the teachers union in Los Angeles, the nation's second largest district, demanded full-time remote learning when the academic year begins on August 18th and called President Trump's push to reopen schools part of a dangerous anti-science agenda that puts the lives of our members, our students, and our families at risk. So you're beginning to see a an organized pushback from teachers, their unions, and even other school employees towards reopening as it presently exists. Los Angeles, we should note, is one of the current hotspots for this crisis. And again, their school year also starts in August. So they're coming up on it real quick. Yeah, the the difference too in New York is, um, and why it, it can be a little weird comparing, you know, what DeSantis in Florida says, another hotspot, or what's going on in LA or California and whole or Texas, um, is that in New York, I mean, we're we're much closer to the containment levels right now, at least that we're seeing in the other rest of the developed world where you have like 1% less than 1% infection rate, um, low hospitalizations compared, at least compared to the rest of the country, the the numbers declining. Um, so the messaging about what the demand is going to be from teachers, teachers unions about what, what reopening should look like, is going to be interesting because is it going to be like, no, not, is it going to be a hard line? Like until there's a vaccine or like some kind of like real treatment, then, then it's a straight up. No, is it going to be, are there going to be ideas? Some of which I've seen where it's like school districts should, you know, pay local businesses or owners of properties. Say we're going to use your building as a classroom for the time being. And just to make sure kids are spread out, classes are smaller. Uh, but yeah, like in New York specifically, it's interesting because we're one of those handful of states that have, um, at least right now, or we have it on the, you know, we have it on the back foot a little bit on the virus. So what yeah, is the, what we is the scared it back into its hole. New York tough, baby. Like what, what, what is the benchmark for where, you know, where we should be reopening and, and what would that look like? And I haven't seen consistent messaging, um, or at least clear messaging yet. And that'll be resolved probably early August. It sounds like about like what the core demand for reopening would be from the teachers and from, you know, students or in, in things like that. I think, um, so here's the thing. Um, I work in a building that is abnormally resistant to any kind of workplace democracy because we're non-union. And then beyond that, our bosses, uh, how do I put it? Every protocol, every safety measure, everything we've talked about our bosses have developed more in conjunction with other schools than they have with us. They've talked more like our principal has talked more to other principals than he's talked to his own faculty. Our administrators have talked more to administrators of schools in Arizona and Texas and Florida than they have talked to us about what we'd like to see. And I suspect that you're going to see a lot of that. That's why the messaging has been that teachers just want to have it easy or that teachers are young and therefore not at risk, as if we didn't just have the high-profile death of a 41-year-old dude uh, because both his lungs failed and he lost a leg to the coronavirus. Like, there is a very real risk to these things. And what's ultimately going to happen is that, I and I can tell you this as a teacher who looks at this stuff, I don't know why I do it, but I do. And after the first month, when parents realized how tough it is to have to be an educator, how to not, you know, tear your hair out or your kid's hair out when they don't understand something or whatever, it became a thing of remote learning is easy on the teacher and they just want to be lazy and so on. And nothing could be further from the truth. 
the reason when you see teachers pushing back against something like this, it's be let me be real clear. They are pushing to do something that they know sucks. They don't like it either. No more than students or parents do. But there is a very real distrust that anyone but teachers will have their interests and students and parents' at heart. And I don't think they're incorrect in thinking that way. Yeah, much of this you know, idea about reopening schools is premised on the idea that students are young and we've seen less harmful effects, less deaths at least from coronavirus among the young, though obviously at this stage, it's still a very new virus and there's a lot that's unknown about the long-term impacts of this. You have seen rare instances of young people suffering strokes as a result of this virus. And obviously, as has been mentioned before, not every teacher is, you know, young. Uh, I came across earlier today in one article or another that about 30% of teachers in public schools are above the age of 50. So that's getting you up in that high risk area. And so there is a real, I guess, fear about what reopening could mean. And you're seeing in some states... uh, a lot of retirements, a lot of pe- teachers wondering if they will go back in, even if their schools reopen. And there's going to be um, Arizona is fearing a teacher shortage this fall it, in, in a state that already has uh, a teacher shortage owing to poor pay and a number of other factors. So I now, Rich, you alluded to it earlier. What is the real reason for this push against all odds against all science, against all these rightful concerns about safety. Why is this push being made? It's because we need to reopen the economy, or at least that's what Republicans would have you believe. And that really can't happen if parents are being tasked with taking care of their kids at the same time. And, you know, What's so what's always been so stupid about like the reopen the economy demand is like you thought the economy was bad when uh, everyone was staying at home and doing their best to stop COVID. Wait until you see how the economy looks when everyone has COVID uh, and the pandemic uh, forces people to stay home because they're sick and dying, uh, because that's, you know, not too hyperbolically the near future we're looking at uh, with the path we're on and the, the, the sort of the, the discourse about forcing schools back open and the kind of shallow um, the shallow protocols being put in place uh, are only going to contribute to that that future hell world we're going to be uh, enduring in the next few months. Yeah, I mean, optimistically, what I'm, I'm hoping um, in terms of how people are viewing this is that they understand schools to be, you know, much more than just where their kids are there to like meet certain standards and just hit their different benchmarks so that they can go and become, you know, productive citizens as adults, right? It's much more than that. It's it's a place where kids are socialized to an extent. It's it's a universal daycare program, essentially, from age four or five to 18. Um, it's a place where the entire concept of normality and continuity in our economy and society is built around the school as being, public schools specifically, for the most part, um, as an engine of that, as something that is needed to keep that thing going. Um, So what I'm hoping is that, you know, there's a broader understanding and then hopefully a demand later on 
and that this could be used as a kind of a platform for a demand in the future that, you know, we meet, we need more of these kinds of institutions in our lives um, so that we have stronger safeguards so that everything is not dumped into one specific kind of institution like schools or the teachers that are working in them um, so that we have other ways to kind of um, shift the demands of our workers and parents and people who, you know, do need to be productive eventually at some point um, so that, you know, things aren't all pushed onto one group of people to, to make things happen, regardless of their safety or, you know, their risk of death. I mean, and, and especially when you have uh, literal children involved who, by the way, they could say like, okay, it only affects people who are compromised. Well, schools encompass all kids. There's kids in anyone who's in any school, whether it's public or private, you probably have taught a couple kids at least who have some pretty serious medical problem, even if it's not apparent every day, they take some medication maybe, um, but they can like arrest kids with asthma, kids with tons of kids have asthma. I mean, any kind of like chronic issue that may not be uh, prevalent in their day-to-day life because it's being managed and medicated all of a sudden is a serious, serious risk um, to their well-being. And these are, you know, kids who are 5, 10, 12, 15 years old. I mean, you know, it's that aspect of it too is pretty sadistic is that when you have something that's so universal, it becomes even more real, the fact that this virus could affect you. Yeah, I I think ultimately for as, you know, justified as people are in wanting schools to open as, you know, understandable as that desire is, the, the science and the health and safety aspect of this isn't going to budge just because people want it. And that's kind of been the thought process throughout this country that, you know, if we just want to reopen enough, we can do it and it'll be fine. And as we've seen with this recent spike in cases, this second wave, so to speak, not that the first ever really went away, you know, the science doesn't budge just because you want it to, unfortunately. Facts don't care about your feelings. Yes, if you will. And, you know, on the scale that public school exists, even if the death rate for children is, you know, 0.01%, you're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of kids getting this disease and dying. And that is not, I feel, a risk that um, can be justified by, you know, what we have going on currently in this country, unfortunately. We're going to take a bit of a break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the very similar debate playing out right now on college campuses and whether they should reopen this fall. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Rich. Hey. Noah. Hey. And Chris. What up? In in this segment, we're going to shift the topic of conversation away from K-12 schools and whether they should open this fall and towards colleges, which are having a similar but different in its own way debate about 
you know, what their plans are for this fall. And once again, we see uh, the Trump administration is making moves to pressure these colleges to reopen in various ways, um, which we'll get into over the course of this segment. But first off, I want to start with Rich, who has been in the recent past a lecturer on a college campus. What are your thoughts about the prospect of reopening in the fall? Yeah, in the case of colleges, I mean, at, le- at least the stakes are somewhat lower. You're dealing with a, a population that are at least ostensibly students. They're relatively independent. So, I mean, their parents don't have to, like, mind them, at least not to the same extent, you, you know, when you're talking about kids in elementary or secondary education. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a little more flexibility in how uh, how the opening up is going to work. Um, but in, in many respects, it's a lot of the same kind of uh whitewash discussion of like safety protocols and getting kids on campus, but with the added element that the students are also the primary source of revenue for the college. Uh, so it, it, it's, there's like a gross kind of material calculation going behind it as well. Um, so I'll just say up hand, uh, you know, front, front and center, I've been uh, told more or less, I, I won't be teaching in the fall. You know, the, there's maybe still an option, but like if they go completely online, uh, which seems likely they're not bringing any of their um, any of their lecturers or adjuncts back. Um, but I was I and the other uh, adjuncts in my university were like polled, like you know what what would make you or like how would you want to teach your class basically and like what would you prefer? And I mean it, it's the same thing as like what Noah and Chris were saying. Like there's just nothing like the classroom environment for teaching students. Uh, and that was basically what I said. Like I wouldn't feel. I don't. I wouldn't feel comfortable going back to the classroom, but I also don't want to teach anywhere but in a classroom, because I did the the half semester, more than half a semester of teaching online, and it, it was a nightmare. Uh, it was, you know, and I mean, part of that was the circumstances where it was scary, and you know, people were going into the unknown, and you know, we were trying to figure this out by the seat of our pants. But you know, even when we sort of settled into things, you know, it just wasn't the same experience of being able to convey, uh, you know, convey learning to to students or for students to be able to participate fully. And so uh, asking students to come back for that and pay full price uh, for like the campus experience. So, you know, the tens of thousands of dollars of tuition and, you know, the extra thousands of dollars in room and board, uh, I think is just malice at this point. That said, you know, the the stuff they were talking about in terms of like safety protocols was like, uh, if you taught in a classroom, you teach in a lecture hall, only maybe like a third of the kids would be attending each session. So there'd have to be like some sort of balance of uh, in classroom and out of classroom. And so there'd be like, they'd be roughly maintaining the social distance. You know, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't have to like be within, you know, six feet of 45 kids uh, while I'm teaching a class. Um, But at the same time, you know, it presents all the same issues that uh, of safety that, you know, any other school environment presents. Uh, you know, like colleges are already sort of notorious as being uh, like hotbeds for meningitis outbreaks. I see COVID being even more menacing than that, uh, because once the students are outside the classroom, you know, there's no saying there's no saying how they're going to like, you know, socially distance themselves, how uh, effectively they're going to mask themselves. And then the same thing goes for the teachers. Uh, you know, are they going to feel a false sense of safety being on campus? Uh, and so my thought is, you know, probably the safest bet is just to not be there. Do your best with online teaching for as long as you can uh, until, you know, you can safely return to the classroom, you know, put up with it in the name of, uh, you know, the, the, the safety of students and staff and faculty. 
Uh, but unfortunately, that's that's not the direction things are going in. Unlike with schools or at least public schools where there's, you know, only 50 different standards for how they're going to approach this problem. You know, there are a thousand colleges and universities or however many in the U.S. And each of them is going to have its own approach to uh, this fall semester and what they want to do about the ongoing pandemic and how they feel is best to um, handle it. Um, I'm reading now from an article in Bloomberg that was written just a couple days ago. Uh, quote, Harvard and Princeton universities will limit how many students can return to campus this fall. Colby College will bring everyone back and test them twice a week for COVID-19. At Rutgers University, most classes will be online. Purdue University said last month that it had purchased over a mile of plexiglass, then used the announcement as a fundraising pitch. Georgia's public institutions, meanwhile, only moved to require masks on Monday. So already you're seeing like a lot of different strategies. And I, to some extent, it's a useful experiment in what works and what doesn't. But the problem is we find out what doesn't when somebody dies. Yeah, I think it's different. The ramifications, too, of it are different than what we would think about when it comes to like the, the universal public school system. Um, because the attacks on college, and you're, you're already seeing this from Trump, especially, um, which which has always been a big right wing line, is that you know they're centers of indoctrination. Um, they kind of you know they they screw up your kids, you know that kind of thing, which is a lot easier an attack to make because college is not as embedded in everyone's life the way public school systems are. Um, now, as from our socialist perspective, this can have a couple. This could be a good or bad thing, I, I think, or somewhere in between in the future. Um, because there is a truth that you know, these are centers of, of, of elite um, kind of reproduction, right? Um, they're centers of they load up debt, they profiteer off of this need that we now have to professionalize young people and kind of inundate them so that they are ready to be productive people in this kind of white collar professionalized economy where they are, you know, they have the right social mannerisms and they separate themselves from the rest of the working class. Um, no, that started to break down because, you know, our generation and younger now are seeing that, you know, that you don't you don't get the results of that that you were promised by unless you go into like a job that's relates to like weapons manufacturing or finance. Right. And, and engineering. Right. Unless you go into things like that, you're probably going to struggle to make the money that you were promised. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see is if this creates a, you know, medium to long term um, change of thought for a lot of people like, Hey, should I go to university at all? Like, do I really need this? Do I need to just go just for the sake of the light? Cause if the whole, the whole, a lot of the reason you go is even if you don't know what you're doing, you're going because it's a part of your life experience. It's a part of how you learn to become an adult for a certain kind of, um, for someone who came up with a certain kind of childhood. That's pretty broad, a, you know, a suburban or even an urban kind of middle-class um, childhood where maybe you live with your parents, you don't have to take, you're not very independent. And then you go to college to become independent, to learn all these things, experience new things. Um, if that's no longer worth it, then you're going to see a big change, I think, in who decides to go to college and what the benefit is, because the benefits of it have always been more than just, you know, Hey, you need to go to get a job. Um, it's been, it's, it's a part of how you're socialized and it's become a part of how you, um, grow up, so to speak. Um, so that, that that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, another 
difference, I think, between public schools and colleges, right? Chris, you said in the last segment that public schools represent not just a place where kids go to hang out for, you know, eight hours a day and be taught stuff, but they are a, a sort of community space, a public space. And in that spirit, and even if you're not a public school, like the parents and um, if they want to, the students in my school can see more of the school's books, the, their finances and everything, than I get to see from my bosses. Like I have to actually go dig them up, but they're sent to parents and students in much the same way. If you live in a school district, there's, uh, you know, and, and you pay uh, property taxes, I guess you're, you're constantly being asked, like, you need to be ready for the budget vote and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and all this stuff. Colleges are famous for filling massive amounts of BS stuff on their budgets. Um, I've talked to a number of alumni, uh, students of mine or, or guys who've been in, in clubs that I've uh, run, and they were saying, we'd even be fine with paying full tuition if our school goes online. What we don't like is that they're still going to charge us like room and board, even if we're not living there, or they'll charge us, you know, student activities fees when there's no student activities to be had. Um, so there, there's also a difference there in that colleges have operated with a far more generous lens from the people that go there in being allowed to just uh, inflate their accounts with just whatever the hell they wanted. And maybe this will finally get people to realize because I, I I do think it's correct that for a certain kind of of person, college becomes where you start learning how to be an adult. But to me, part of that is because we have slowly made high school less and less independent. And um, I think this might be a chance for for college age people to kind of rediscover that they're supposed to be a little bit more uh, responsible for their own uh, sort of futures than high school students. Yeah. And, and, you know, also building on what Chris was saying before, I, I think whatever happens in the fall and, or, you know, just broadly the 2020, 2021 school year, uh, we've seen the end of the American university as it's previously been known. So, I mean, the main thing I'm thinking about is, uh, how absolutely dependent these universities have become on international students because uh, they can charge them full tuition. Uh, they don't ask, they, they're not eligible for financial aid. Uh, you know, they can really, uh, they can really, you know, really gut them and, you know, use them as a, as a source of revenue uh, in a really, really cynical way. Uh, just really selling the universities as like a prestigious American you know, subtext better than your schools, uh, your country schools experience for your students. Uh, so reproducing that kind of eliteness that goes with America, uh, but, you know, in other countries, most particularly China. But now that spigot's going to be cut off. On You know, on the one hand, there's, there's kind of like a push and pull there. On the one hand, like, frankly, they just can't travel here anymore. Uh, you know, why, why would they, even if they could? You know, you're just traveling into a, a hot zone. And then we saw last week uh, ICE, uh, the evil brown shirts of uh, the federal law enforcement uh, apparatus, uh, like published a memo uh, basically saying that if international students are still in the United States and colleges go online, 
they, they, those students have to go home or risk being deported. Uh, so in other words, you know, the universities wouldn't be able to even maintain uh, those student bodies of international students on campus, um, you know, because of that, like that ICE measure that's being forced on them. So they're, they're, they're fighting back about against that ICE order. I know there's lawsuits uh, that Harvard and MIT like basically immediately launched uh, against that because it, was, it wasn't just a federal attack on immigration, though it was that first and foremost. It was also a federal attack on the finances of the university to uh, undercut what is seen or what has traditionally been seen as a bastion of uh, liberal elite power. And I think, I think, you know, win or lose in that case, the, those days are over for uh, the university. And so, you know, it's, it's just a question of what's going to be next. You know, what what kind of university we're going to be able to build in uh, the ashes? And I'm I'm not the most optimistic that that's going to be the best uh, possible futures coming. I think we're going to see uh, kind of the university of Phoenixization of uh, higher education in the country. It's been weird to see this sort of dual line from Republicans and the Trump administration, where on one hand, uh, colleges are these Marxist indoctrination centers. And on the other, you really have to do that indoctrination in person. Please don't go online. You know, don't use this less effective teaching method. Um, we, we also should note that as in schools, as with uh, teachers in schools, this represents a labor issue for a lot of the people working on campuses, professors and the various like custodial staffs and kitchen staffs that go into making a university happen. The idea of being on campus, of be having these large throngs of uh, teenagers effectively just do whatever they want as they will on a campus, it, it is another health risk for the workers who have to take care of them in the classroom and out of the classroom. I do want to note something from my alma mater, Boston University, which has taken a really poor tack to all of this and been very direct in how this is a labor issue. Quoting from a story from WGBH, which is a public radio in Boston, quote, doctoral students at Boston University could be forced to take a leave of absence and, and lose their health insurance if they do not comply with new guidelines requiring them to return to campus in the fall. So here the threat is that if they don't, um, if they aren't on campus for their research or their um, teaching opportunities, they will lose their stipend and their health insurance. Now, after pushback, this has since been walked back to where, uh, okay, we won't take away your health insurance during the pandemic, but you still need to be on campus to earn your stipend, your income. And that places uh, these doctoral students in a very weird bind of having to choose between their livelihood and their health and safety. Yeah, I think the interesting thing too is that in colleges like throughout the country, like really, it's not really a secret. And we've probably had episodes about it and punching out um, is that the ranks of teachers and college employees in general, I mean, are, they're not very well compensated or unionized. I mean, it's, it's largely it's adjuncts. It's not professor tenured professors or anything like that. Um, it's a lot of these places have workforces that are already like, you know, union busted, you know, they, they're not organized a lot of the time they're, they're paid very low. They got to do a lot for a little. Um, so it's, it's something that's a little even more dire. And also 
with some of these bigger schools, you have a real large, these game day operations, right? I mean, you could do a whole thing just on the challenges around college athletics in the fall opening up, particularly college football. Um, and th those are things where they, a lot of these schools make money off of that as well. Um, billions of dollars. Um, and that's how they finance a lot of other things. Um, and we mentioned too with the immigrants. I mean, that's that's just a clear case of just you know very blatant like culture war, immigration, election year stuff just being weaponized, right? There's no real benefit to anybody, even the schools, even you know whatever wealthy assholes that are typically very selfish um, about making money off of their student body. Um, th there's no benefit for them in, in that way either. So that's like another just like really bizarre, but not really surprising twist in this is like the way immigrant students are being treated. And, you know, we'll see how that impacts the U.S.'s standing as like this international college hub that it's been for so long. Yeah. Um, if I can just take a step back, because there's one little twist to uh, what my college has done that is just so perfectly, it, it's almost Kafka-esque. You know, this story about them taking away their health insurance and their stipend, it's it's the sort of penny pitching from employers that we're used to on punching out. But there's this little detail. Uh, a friend of mine from college is now a doctoral student there. She teaches on campus or had been teaching on campus. And she pointed out that they've done the work to calculate, here's how many people this classroom can hold if we're abiding by social distancing. So her classroom can hold six people, including herself, and she has a class of 18. So what she's being asked to do is, you know, take public transit to go to a classroom so that she can teach a third of her class in person, and then the other two thirds via online the same way she could if she was at home. It, it's just really sort of bizarre that she's being asked to do this. Yeah, the, the, the money thing uh, is, is an important point too. It is really like, as with any situation, it's the it's the lowest paid, lowest power people on the campus who are the ones who are going to bear uh, the brunt of these costs. And so like at the school I'm teaching at, it's not just me, it's, it's all the adjuncts uh, who are kind of just like summarily dismissed uh, which is something they can do with really no warning. Uh, it's just written right into the contracts we sign. And we only get paid uh, $2,500 a class. You know, compare that to the the teachers, the, the tenured professors or the tenure track professors who start off at like sixty, seventy, eighty thousand $80,000 a year. Um, and, you know, there's, it's a real kind of, uh, you know, disparity we've talked about in the show before. And it's always funny when like, I kind of complain about how low I'm paid. My students think I'm just like, being a jerk and i'm like no I, I really get almost nothing for teaching this class it's it's more of a a labor of love for me you know for better or worse and then it's the same thing with graduate students like in like the ones you're talking about in boston university like i'm not sure what the stipends are there but you know for most grad schools for phd candidates even though they're working full-time jobs effectively when they're teaching classes in addition to doing their work on you know whatever thesis or dissertation or project they're working on there's they're only getting uh you know, poverty or sub-poverty wages and their salaries. And so it's especially upsetting to see the universities really afflict them with extra harm in this, you know, most dire of circumstances when on top of everything else to really like rub salt in the wound, as we saw here locally, most of these universities are sitting on large endowments, billions of dollars of basically money they invest as hedge funds. And they're just not, they refuse to touch it 
for the benefit of their employees in this like moment when you know this is when endowments are supposed to exist for they're supposed to provide the university's financial buffers uh but you know that's not their purpose as far as like the boards of trustees are concerned and so because they want to keep making their huge investment dollars uh you know with with these endowments we're the ones who have to bear the costs of uh you know not having jobs risking healthcare or like having that that catch 22 you highlighted Ryan of well you can lose your healthcare in covid uh or you can teach and keep your healthcare and then probably certainly almost certainly get covid but at least you'll have healthcare to pay for like 10% of the cost yeah that that gets us something that i had been thinking about since the last segment because uh Ryan what you mentioned with your friend um, that's something that my school is looking at too. We're looking at splitting classes between online uh, learning and in person. And we're looking at stuff like uh, for lunch times, we're looking at having them in the classroom so that the kids can be split up and that kind of thing. <clears throat> and a lot of this is almost encouraging in that it's kind of the 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 big visionary type thinking that I think a moment like this is going to require. But at the same time, this is something Lou said on last week's episode. The only industries we respect are industries that kill. And schools at their best, universities at their best, which is very far away from what they are, are quite the opposite of that. They are a form of reproducing, you know, uh, uh, of creating citizens, of furthering the life of the country. And what this crisis has shown is that to a lot of people, um, to make schools respectable, to make them an institution that uh, they think that that people will will hold up in terms of praise and and respect, they have to subject students and teachers to death, and especially universities because they're not subject to any kind of public vote or accountability for the most part, are going to do that. Um, this that endowment thing, by the way, in particular, uh, very much hit home. We actually did draw on our endowment to be able to freeze pay, and I remember coworkers of mine talking to me about why why aren't we taking a bigger draw? And it's I had the same answer for them as Rich did because rich people, and this is something we say a lot on this show, don't want to accept any risk whatsoever, uh, even though they're supposed to be the masters of the universe who understand risk better than we peons when it actually comes time for them to have to endure a rainy day. They just, they simply cannot do it or uh, yeah. That's why like, you know, I, I'm not entirely convinced that all that this ultimately has to end up being like a bad thing. Right. Especially when it comes to colleges, like, is it bad that maybe there isn't this thing, this thing, this institution of universities that is used to differentiate working person from working person you know is it bad that you know there is no longer this pipeline to these jobs that you know a lot of times tend to harm people right not that we don't need these um institutions where knowledge can be disseminated but maybe there's a future where it's not something that's so isolated and is so contained and is used to kind of further oscillate the different kinds of working class person the way it's been doing um you know it, it, if if things are acted upon the right way um, and if people, and, and if the right victories are won and if enough victories are won in the night in near future during this crisis, 
um, this could very well be a turning point to where, you know, it's another barrier that falls um, and that could that can lead to something good. So, you know, I choose to, you know, view this with a sense of possible optimism, so to speak. Yeah, well said. Like I, I will, I will shed no tears for the neoliberal university, and uh, you know certainly all the debt it saddled a generation of students on for uh, to lie in the pockets of uh, deans and trustees uh, who really, frankly, couldn't care less about education if they can't count it or measure it. It might as well not exist for these people. And I mean, so we don't really have enough enough time left to get into like what a like a socialist university would look like. But there is a positive potential future here, one where dem where universities are more democratic, more egalitarian, uh, where, you know, learning isn't tied so explicitly toward uh, professionalization, where it is tied toward making people citizens, making people more adept at participating in society, uh, you know, developing their own individual interests uh, as, as people rather than as producers or employees. Uh, but that's probably for a, di a different episode. For now, we're we're still very much in the midst of uh, COVID and you know the devastation of of education that's going to come out in, in the aftermath of it. I I would say that's exactly correct. You know, as somebody who I knew that I was going to have to teach pretty much since high school, and maybe the most disturbing thing about the work that I've done, I've, I've taught for a decade now, and maybe the most disturbing part of it has been seeing how poorly this country treats the act of education. And I've said a million times before on this show why I think that's the case, but that doesn't make it any less sad. And so if there is something positive to be taken from a moment like this, I would hope that it's the idea. I mean, I know it's not going to happen in my building, but I would hope that other institutions see this as a chance to democratize, to become more public spaces where the people that are doing the actual work, that are interacting with students, that are uh, carrying out what these schools and universities say they are doing, uh, that they have a little bit more power over their workplaces. Because one of the reasons you're seeing people, uh, you're seeing teachers so dissatisfied and so against the idea of reopening is that they know that when it comes down to it, I think this was in one of the articles, Ryan, that you sent us, uh, a teacher described it as this is going to be an unfunded mandate born on the backs of teachers. And that's exactly right. Like we'll be disinfecting the desks. We will be wearing inadequate PPE, if any at all, uh, some of which we will have to purchase ourselves. We will be the ones interacting with hundreds and hundreds of kids who we know now can transmit the disease just like adults. Um, we are going to be the ones at risk and uh, most frontally, and it's going to be, and we're going to further that problem when we go home to our families, interact with other people in our daily lives, and so will our students. And if there were a safe way, I if, if there were a way that you could guarantee was safe objectively, I know that pretty much every teacher I know would be on board. The reason that they're not has nothing to do with an ideal world. It has to do with the fact that we know for a fact that the people around us are not going to take this as seriously as they should. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good way to put this sort of dilemma we find ourselves in. Um, you know, beyond just the fact of 
the resources needed to perform schools safely in this current circumstance. We also should acknowledge that the reason other countries can have schools safely is because they've done the work of actually defeating and containing coronavirus. We have not done that work. We are still seeing record high totals of cases and hospitalizations, you know, ongoing, you know, right now, a month before the school year is slated to begin in some states. And unless we are able to bring that down and bring it down miraculously fast, there just isn't a way, no matter how many resources you put towards it, not that those resources have been plentiful in recent years and the impacts COVID has had on the economy will no doubt lessen the resources available for public schools to you know, make their classrooms as safe as can be. You're just not going to be able to have schools safely given what we know about this virus. And we all want it to be different. I think all of you have expressed your voice that it would be very good if you could teach as normal this fall. But right now, it, it's it's disappointing, I guess. That that pretty much nails it. It, it is disappointing more than it is anything else. For this week, um, we wish we could say more, but we're going to have to cut it short now. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>